Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today on Terranauts, we have a guest that I've wanted to talk to since before I started the podcast. Jeff Manver has been working in the space business for over 30 years. He's worked with both the Russian and U.S. space programs, and he's been a pioneer in the private commercial use of space. It's fair to say that while space has been his destination for a long time, he has found about as many ways to get there as just about anyone who's never left the planet. And that makes him a Terranaut in my books. Jeff Manber, welcome to Terranauts. Hey, Ian. It's great to be here today. Thank you. And great description. Yep, I've been trying for a long time. Yeah, so so maybe just uh, we always like to start with people's backgrounds. You're, you're an American. Um, did you grow up on Tales of Apollo and thinking that you were going to be involved in the space program? Uh, yes, my brother and I, when we were uh, teenagers, uh, and I was reading Tom Corbett and his Space Cadet and other books uh, in the early 60s, we assumed that we would be uh, on the moon. I, I remember thinking that by the end of the century, uh, 2000, which seemed an impossibly long period of time in the future, right. uh, my brother and I would be on Mars. There was really no right. doubt about that. And we decided that uh, that um, that would be our pursuit. Um, my brother, my older brother, Larry, came to his senses and uh, became a patent attorney. Right. And I've yet to come to my senses. So so that's that's how I got here. And so how did you first get involved in the space business? Uh, I was a writer uh, in the 80s, uh, in the late 80s, and I became, I was fascinated by the shuttle program. Mm -hmm. And as I say, that was one of the last times until recently that I believed NASA. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, and as we do this interview, a very good man has just passed away, Jim Beggs. Yeah. Uh, he was administrator of NASA. And uh, he declared at the end of STS-5, I think it was, that uh, this shuttle program was operational. Right. And it would open an era of uh, everyday people and everyday companies working and living in space. And the shuttle would be a space truck uh, launching and landing 50 times a year. And I thought this was way cool. Yeah. And so uh, I was a writer and I became in a few years the go-to writer in New York on this whole newfangled thing called commercial space, or as we look at it now, it's probably space 1.0. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked for the New York Times for um, McGraw-Hill, which was Aviation Week for Business okay. Week. Uh, and so I worked for a whole bunch of people getting to know that first generation of space entrepreneurs. Mm. Uh, among the more famous was Deke Slayton of the original yes. uh, um, uh, Mercury 7, uh, and he had a company called Space Services, uh, which ended up launching the first private rocket uh, to launch from the uh, United States uh, off uh, the coast of Texas. Really? And so I began just telling the stories as a young writer 
in my 20s and meeting these people and and I got sucked into it and and so that's really how I got into this uh, business now now it's interesting because you know we think of entrepreneurialism as being kind of a, a Western thing but really some of the very first space entrepreneurs um, were the Russians uh, right around the time that the the um, that the Soviet Union was 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 breaking up and the and and Russia was reforming in its current form. There was a lot of entrepreneurialism going on in Russia, wasn't there? Yeah, there was a decision made, uh, and it's rapidly becoming uh, forgotten as we look back and the excitement over Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, but. Uh, uh, really, the first institutional support for commercial uh, private ventures came with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, the then leader of the Soviet Union, the last leader of the Soviet Union, uh, Gorbachev, uh, he made a decision that uh, their world-class programs uh, had to stand on their own commercially. And that was uh, Aeroflot, the, uh, the airplane. Um, it was the Bolshoi Ballet. Uh, it was the caviar business yes. uh, and uh, space. And I may have missed one, you know, gold and some of the other basic raw materials, oil and gas. Um, but basically, those four were the ones that the Soviets said, okay, you have to stand on your own commercially. And so uh, starting about early 90s, you began to see the uh, Soviet slash Russians going around the world saying we want to reorganize restructure and we want to do space services for a fee and uh and we had the struggle with the deke slaytons and others uh to try and be commercial uh during a time when uh when nasa was not interested and the american government was not interested so ironically paradoxically and embarrassingly uh, the Russians really led us on the way to the commercial space pathway. Interesting. And so this, this to, to you know, get everybody in context, this was around the time of the, the shuttle and Mir program, uh, which was really the beginning of when the U.S. and the Russians were actually uh, learning a lot about how to collaborate um, in space, right? Yeah, uh, in the uh, near the end of the uh, Reagan administration, uh, Gorbachev announced uh, that uh, the uh, brand new Russian space station Mir was open for business, mm-hmm. and and this coincided with the Challenger uh, tragedy, and so here we were in the United States, uh, we had no transportation to and from space because the shuttle was a virtual monopoly, not like today where we have uh, wonderful, uh, robust access to and from space. And that was because uh, we learned our lessons from the uh, shuttle era. But at the time, pretty much our only access to space was the shuttle. It was grounded because of the Challenger disaster, which killed the uh, Challenger crew on the way up. And uh, here was the uh, Soviet Union saying, hey, not only do we have the Soyuz and not only do we have cargo ships uh, called Progress, but we have a brand new space station and wait, there's more. It's open for business. Mm -hmm. And so, so what was your experience with that open for business Mir space station? 
funny you should ask, Ian. <laughs> so so uh, at that time, I was working, uh, I was invited by the Reagan administration uh, to join them at the end, the last year. Uh, I always join a party, it seems, when it's winding down. So uh, this was the uh, last year of the Reagan administration, and we set up the Office of Space Commerce right. uh, in the Department of Commerce. And the importance of that uh, is that it was the first shop outside of NASA to be uh, engaged in representing American industry. And again, at that time, up until that time in the 80s and early 90s, NASA had a monopoly. And that was just plain wrong. It had a monopoly on hardware going to space. It had a monopoly on the astronauts going to space. And it had a monopoly on the policy when it sat at the table within the White House and in Congress. What NASA said really represented our commercial, uh, our civilian um, uh, space program. And that's wrong for one federal agency to have that. So I was brought into the Reagan administration at the end to help set up the space commerce. And uh, one day some friends of mine walked in the door and said, uh, hey, we're glad you joined the government. And I'd been a freelance writer and working in New York on uh, for New York Times and Aviation Week and McGraw-Hill and Business Magazines and this whole area. And, um, and, uh, and so I, I joined the government and about three, four weeks after I joined, some friends, one of them, Dr. Anthony Arrett, comes in, comes down to Washington and says, you got to keep a secret. You're not going to believe this. But we're signing an agreement with the Soviets to do pharmaceutical drug research on the on the mirror. Mm-hmm. Can you help us get American government permission? Right. And that's how I got involved in working for the Russians. And uh, for about four months, uh, we worked very carefully. I took it upstairs at the Commerce Department. And there was an entire wing of the Reagan administration that was very pro working with the Russians because the Russians were embracing capitalism. Mm. And, and so they saw this as a means to help what had been our enemy, not only our military enemy, but ideological enemy, right. as they embraced capitalism to help them embrace capitalism. So we got permission all the way up to the Reagan White House to work on this small project, to make it a reality, uh, to have uh, uh, a spectrum of pharmaceutical companies in North America, including Canadian, uh, and I forget the name now of the Canadian companies, but to work on uh, to work on uh, uh, the brand new space station near. And uh, one of the things was at the Commerce Department, we went immediately to DOD, and they gave us permission for the same reasons to see how real this effort was. But we hid it from NASA. So NASA didn't know anything about it? No. And the reason why we hid it from NASA was NASA would have been opposed. Right. Because they would have been threatened, because it would have, uh, and it did impact their monopoly. Right. And we hid it from NASA, and we hid it from congressional supporters of NASA, and uh, we had to file an export license, and it went, uh, and the title of the export license was permission something. I'm, I may have it slightly wrong now, but it was uh, permission requested for uh, an American company to work on a unique Soviet. Uh, laboratory. And so we never had the word space on it. Right. And why should that matter? It shouldn't. And so, so that was still in the days of the Soviet Union, not, not, not Russia. 
Correct. And, and we knew that if we put on that export license permission to, uh, for American company to work in a Soviet laboratory in space right. or on board the space station near, that NASA would get involved, State Department would get involved, and they would seek to end it because space uh, was deemed to be uniquely American and totally NASA. Right. It changed nothing in the issues of technology transfer to simply say, we are requesting permission on behalf of an American company to work on a Soviet laboratory, in a Soviet laboratory, whose facilities and capabilities do not exist in the United States. Oh, so you're probably our first clandestine Terranaut uh, on, uh, on the program where somebody was going to space without ever wanting to tell anybody they were. Um, well, we, right, that, that may be true and that's how you survive. And, and so uh, we got permission, DOD knew what we we were doing and they gave permission and when the story broke it broke in the f- front page of the new york times in 1989 sure. Sure. and um there's an expression i won't use but i'll say there was a great deal of umbrage taken by the washington establishment sure. uh congressman bill nelson uh who's uh, no longer uh in political life he's uh, rose to be a senator yeah. he held a news conference and said uh, this is illegal uh, State Department said this is illegal. NASA said this will not happen. Sure. And uh, when the dust cleared, it was legal. We had the export license. Uh, I made a mistake uh, being the commerce point person on this as a young man. I did not understand one of the basic rules of policy. When you win, you tell your opponents before the news breaks publicly. Right. And that was a mistake of a young man, and, and uh, I've learned from that. And, uh, but it, we went forward, and uh, Payload Systems, the American company, uh, did the pharmaceutical project on the Mir. I learned a lot about the Russians, and uh, yeah. as we can soon talk about, the Russians ended up inviting me to represent them, uh, one company in particular, uh, Nergia, to represent them with the Americans uh, going forward. Right. Um, but it also showed, you know what? There is a market uh, yeah. for space stations. There is a market for companies. Yeah. Uh, and we learned a lot about that that I still to this day, uh, it got me on my career path of uh, working on space stations. And, um, and, and so it all opened up for industry and for me personally uh, because some friends walked in the door when I was in the Reagan administration. Well, and, and we also learned that in, in the modern day that, that going to space alone is just not, not a good idea. I mean, that was 1989, four years later in 1993, um, you know, I'm sitting in mission control while uh, the space shuttle um, does a fly around uh, the Mir space station and, and later on, uh, you know, helping Chris Hadfield install an actual piece of, of Russian hardware with an American arm. So, so um, you know, within four years of that time, NASA and uh, the Russian Russians were actually uh, collaborating. And uh, I don't remember how many flights eventually flew to Mir, but it was it was quite a number, right? Yeah, the uh, Mir shuttle program, as I still call it, and the Americans call it uh, the shuttle Mir program, but the Mir shuttle program was extremely important uh, because it forced the uh, uh, NASA engineers to uh, work with the Russians. Uh, it was in a fascinating period. Uh, the fact they had to use the Russian docking system, um, and uh, and by the way, that picture, which uh, some of your listeners may not remember, but the wonderful picture of uh, showing the shuttle 
doctor, the mirror. Um, people never really think about to ask, how did that picture get taken? And uh, it got taken when a young engineer at the uh, Russian organization, Energia, uh, said, why don't we uh, take a picture? Yes. Of the uh, shuttle docking. And NASA said, no way. Absolutely not. All right. And uh, Mr. Semyonov, the head of Energia, said, it's my Soyuz. I'll do what I want. Right. And uh, he sent the Soyuz out and they uh, snapped the picture. Yeah. As, uh, as a doc, and it's an extraordinary picture, um, representing international cooperation at its finest. So, Yes. yes. So, so now fast forward ahead, though, to, to the other end of the, of the Mir's lifetime. Um, you're probably one of the few people I've ever met who's actually rented their own space station. Maybe you could tell us about that. <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess that's true. Um, in fact, I say now at Nanorax, uh, the company uh, I head up now, uh, I, I have uh, probably one of the few Western business people who've marketed two space stations. Right. So um, after I worked with the Russians, uh, for nine years, I was the only uh, American to ever work for the uh, manned Russian space program. And we helped bring about the uh, ISS program and as it transitioned away from uh, the Reagan era uh, plan of NASA Space Station Freedom, uh, I ended up working for um, uh, Energia, which is uh, sort of Boeing and Johnson Space Center combined. It's, uh, it's still today there. Uh, prime on the International Space Station. Energia is the organization that uh, launched uh, uh, Sputnik. It's the organization that launched uh, Yuri Gagarin, of course, the first human to go to space, had a proud history on the Soyuz space stations, Mir. And so for several years, I represented them uh, in Washington uh, as we moved into the ISS era. And, uh, And then, but all good things come to an end. And it was a fascinating time. And uh, finally, one day I turned to Energia and said, you know, we've been working together for, you know, six, seven, eight years. I'm going to move on. And we did. And uh, soon after that, a gentleman named Walt Anderson walked into my Washington office and said, I want to buy the Russian space station Mir. (laughs) And to back up for your listeners, this was uh, 98, 1999. And the Mir was aging. The Russians did not have, it was aged. The Russians did not have, the Russian government did not have the money to keep it going. And the American government was very desperate to get it down so that the Russians would uh, focus on the ISS. Yeah, because by then there were the initial elements of ISS had launched by then, right? Correct. Uh, correct. And and uh, and so they were worried that the Russians could not uh, handle both the ISS and uh, the new ISS and the uh, aged Mir. Right. And so, but the uh, and un un. I don't know how to phrase it, but NASA did not focus and the Americans did not focus on the fact that the Russian government, uh, tur- a prime minister at the time, gentleman named Primakov, turned the gave away. The space station, the Russian space station, owned by the government, mm-hmm. gave it away to the private sector, to the private company, Energia, and said, if you can find the funds, you keep it going. <clears throat> but it no longer belongs to the, the Russians did not have a space agency at that time. They had like a three-person one. But they said it no longer belongs uh, to the Russian government. Uh-huh. And so Energia launched this effort 
to try and find the funding to keep the mirror in orbit. And a uh, space nut, let's say, uh, you know, before the era of Bezos's and Elon Musk's, yes. uh, Walt Anderson uh, came to me and said, I want to buy the mirror. What do you think it would cost? And I said, I can tell you, I, I no longer work for the Russians. I no longer work for Energia. But I promise you the Russians will never sell you the mirror. Yes. Uh, okay. And I then said something in poor taste, but I'll repeat it because I've never learned. I, I said, they're not the British. They don't sell away their assets. Okay. They're great landscapes like London Bridge or sure. something like that. And uh, I said, but they might be willing to lease the mirror. Mm. And so I called up my friends uh, at Energia and told them what was happening. And they said, you're correct. Uh, we are interested in leasing it. And Walt brought me in and I found myself getting back on a plane, going back to Russia after seven, eight years of living there and working there. And, and uh, we sat around a table at Energia and over, we had very little time in 99. Yeah. Uh, the year was falling. Uh, It was a period of high solar flare activity. There was a progress on the launch pad. Its uh, mission was to uh, bring the mirror down. Oh, is that right? Yes. And and so over a period of like 60 days, we crafted, maybe less, we crafted an agreement. Uh, We set up a company in Holland called Mircorp. And then the Russians and Walt came to me and said, uh, the Russians said, we'll only go forward if you're the head of Mircorp. And at that time, I was working for an entrepreneur American company doing very interesting things and live video images of the earth. Um, And uh, I was reluctant after seven, eight years of working with the Russians. I was known as the Russian guy, and I didn't want to always be known as the Russian guy. And um, Walt uh, said, please. And finally, I said to Walt, you know, this effort to save the mirror has very little chance. Mm. And I'm only willing to do it and become the, 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 the face of uh, the voice of trying to save a space station. If you understand from the beginning as the principal investor that the chance of success is very limited and you have to accept that. And I remember the moment we were in a restaurant. He looked down and he said, I accept that. I understand I'll probably lose all my money. Okay. And so I accepted and I took it on. And for two hectic, incredible years, we, um, we launched, uh, we moved quickly 10, 15 million into, uh, into Energia. Uh, and we launched the progress not to bring down the, uh, the mirror, but to uh, put it into a higher orbit. Our plan was to put it into a very high orbit using a tether and, oh, yeah. take, a, and take a year or two to figure out uh, exactly the business model. And the American government barred the export of the uh, tether. And so it put us into an even tougher position. We couldn't boost the mirror into the right orbit. Right. And, um, and so we worked very rapidly. And uh, I, we had far greater business success than I ever thought possible. I ended up signing Mark Burnett of Survivor and the American channel NBC to do a game show where the winner would go to space. Yeah. And that alone was probably worth $150, 200000000 million. Uh, we signed Dennis Tito, 
to launch to the space station. And uh, he ended up going with Space Adventures to ISS, but Mircorp signed them. Yeah. And I, I transferred over the launch vehicle contract to uh, the Russians. Um, we signed a, uh, a space agency uh, to work on the Mir. Uh, we worked with Fox, um, media company and the family, the Murdoch family. And when, uh, but the Americans did not give up. And Dan Golden, the head of NASA at the time, fought mm. tooth and nail to, to stop our efforts. Um, he uh, arranged for European Space Agency, ESA, to, um, to have the uh, Dutch close out. We opened up in Holland yeah. to have the Dutch close our bank account. Um, and uh, he went to Congress and complained. And finally, one congressman said, really, your complaint is they negotiated a better deal than you did. <laughs> Mr. Administrator. So it was a very, very difficult time. Yeah. And we were yeah. working against physics and forces. As I said, it was a high solar flare activity. Sure. And then finally, we, um, we sent two cosmonauts, two cosmonauts to, uh, to uh, reopen the space station. And it was the first and only time that a private company using only commercial funds launched two human beings uh, to orbit. And they opened up the space station after eight months of it being closed. It was filled with uh, a lot of uh, floating debris and problems, and uh, they fixed it up. And, uh, and we had a fairly functional near space station for about $40, $50 million. And, um, and then several things conspired against us. One was the American government, as I said, fighting us. And the other we could not overcome. And that was the dot com crash. And some of you may, we, we do this interview during the uh, coronavirus uh, uh, horrific time. Uh, and in 1998, uh, we had another time when the stock market, of course, not as bad as today, but the stock market crashed and the first internet 1.0 um, uh, called dot com and it crashed. And Walt's friends had uh, promised 5, 10, 15 million here and there. And Walt had promised further money and it all came to an end and we could not keep our payments going uh, plus the uh, the um, opposition from the American government and finally the Russians Energia came to me Mr. Semyonov and said Jeff you fought a good battle uh, but we can't continue and uh, when we brought the mirror down uh, we had 179 million in backlog which I'm still very proud of. Yeah. I, had spoke, I had spoken to Elon Musk, who was asking questions. Uh, we had spoken to uh, now Sir Richard Branson and his people, and people were asking the same question. Uh, wow, it looks like you can operate a station commercially. Right. And wow, it looks like a small entrepreneurial company called Mircorp can work with big organizations right. like Energia. Right. So uh, we were a business failure. But we opened the door in many ways. We were one of the data points along the way for the current era. Yeah, well, um, as you say, you, you had a tendency to join the party at the end. But, um, but maybe let's, let's not talk about endings. Um, let's switch gears and talk about beginnings and, and your current venture and how you've really been a pioneer in, in opening uh, the existing International Space Station to commercial use. 
Yes, yeah, so I, I fought for several years to keep the Mir space station in orbit, and it uh, didn't happen. Uh, and then uh, after uh, Mir Corp ended, uh, I uh, again walked away uh, from the uh, from the Russians, uh, and I came back to the states. And uh, some folks came to me with an idea called Nanorax, which was the uh, first effort to have standardized hardware on the International Space Station with low prices. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of the people listening to this may not realize, but, uh, you know, we're speaking here in 2020 and 10 years ago, um, there was no way if you wanted to do something on the International Space Station that you could do it without going to NASA. No. And without spending millions of dollars. Yeah, I, I think people don't appreciate just how much of the money that goes into getting, that used to go into getting into orbit was uh, money that was spent essentially fitting into the system that, that NASA had for for the way that they did things. And there really wasn't any other way to go than to go the way they, they went. Exactly. And so 10 years ago, I went to NASA, and the only way to get to station was uh, the space shuttle. But we knew that SpaceX and Orbital Sciences had won contracts to, to do cargo. And uh, I, I went to NASA and said, I don't want your money. And this was a great surprise to them. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I want the ability to create standardized hardware on the station. Yes. And, um, and they said, what do we have to lose? Right. And so we started uh, uh, we signed an agreement with NASA and it gave us a great deal of freedom, the use of the NASA astronauts up mass. Mm. And uh, we have built nanoracks over 10 years, customer by customer. Right. And uh, we're unique uh, in that we have not built the company uh, through, in- through capital investment. Mm. So we had the freedom uh, to follow the market. Yeah, so you, and, uh, yeah. you, you basically provided the way for people who, who, who could use or needed to be in space. You, you took away all the pain of, trying, of having to get used to that and turned it into any other business venture where they needed a lab and you figured out how to get them on the lab that just happened to be in orbit. Right. In fact, we made a decision early on that if you're a customer of Nanorax, you could not interface with NASA. Right were not allowed. And even NASA uh, said, wait a second, we want to meet the customer. And I said, no, because you don't speak American English. Okay. You speak in acronyms. Uh, I I do not want you meeting my customers who may or may not understand the business. And that is something that, uh, except for a few exceptions, we continue to this day. And so when... Sorry, I used to say that NASA likes to speak in four-letter words. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's acronyms, and and uh, uh, so so we began customer by customer, uh, and many of our first customers were schools and universities that were drawn to us because uh, NASA to this day, uh, if you want to work with NASA or NASA wants a payload, it takes about three years from start mm-hmm. to finish, yes. uh, and uh, with Nanoracks we average under nine months. Right, and so uh, to our surprised the first customers coming to us were uh, schools saying mm-hmm. uh, you know this is wonderful you can we can be working in the school year right. and uh, we had universities uh, and so we built it up to today uh, with the largest commercial user of the International Space Station right. at Nanorax on behalf of uh, customers in over 30 countries Wow 
And, uh, uh, and I'll take a moment and say one of our customers was Beijing Institute of Technology, yes. which was the first uh, commercial Chinese customer on the International Space Station. And we were able to do that within the uh, Wolf Amendment, which prohibits NASA from working with the uh, Chinese. Um, and so every step of the way, uh, Nanorax has been a pathfinder uh, mm-hmm. for uh, this new era of public-private partnerships right. where maybe the taxpayer whether the Canadian Space Agency, and the, by the way, at Nanorax, uh, Canadian Space Agency is a customer for a wonderful contest in all of the uh, provinces yes. uh, to deploy CubeSats. Right. And at Nanorax, we've deployed over 250 CubeSats uh, uh, from the space station. And, and so we've achieved a number of things at Nanorax. Uh, number one, we've shown that small companies, entrepreneurial companies can work with the bigger guys like we did, at, yeah. as I did at Mir. Yes. And uh, number two, we've shown that space stations have a place. They, they, they can be a platform for more than human-rated uh, space tourism or, or human-rated testing. And for example, at Nanorax, we have a current program now called Stash and Deploy, where in this era of SpaceX and Rocket Lab and India and China and Russia, that I call deploy same-day deploy of satellites. Right. But we also are working on the space station where you bring uh, CubeSats up and you may keep it on the station for two, three months and deploy right. on demand. Right. So, and then as you look at in-space manufacturing in a few years, we're showing and we've shown there's a need for commercial space stations. Yeah. So I'm very proud of that. And that's where we are today well, at Nanorex. Yeah, well, and, and certainly it's fair to say that you've probably provided more opportunities for people to become Terranauts um, than, than a lot of people. And um, I, I agree with you. It, it's, you know, the thing about um, NASA that people at NASA just didn't understand was that they were such a particular environment that they just scared people away. And people who had great ideas um, w- would just get entangled in the in the bureaucracy. And, and as you say, their timelines just didn't conform to, to the way things were done. So so founding a company to, to be the mediator between NASA and all of the people who had great ideas about how to use space was, I think, was really a, a, an entrepreneurial and, and visionary thing to do. And, and I quite literally, I think it has made space so much more accessible to people um, than it was even 10 years ago. And, and I think for that, uh, all of the Terranauts um, owe you a great uh, deal of thanks. And, and I would like to thank you for having been on the program to tell us about it. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And it's, uh, I really appreciate what you were doing to make, to continue to democratize space and the frontier and your efforts are wonderful. And I really enjoyed the time and uh, let's, uh, you know, hope that uh, things get better for us during this uh, uh, crisis that we're in today with the health crisis and the coronavirus and the, and that uh, people all around the world uh, can uh, continue to dream about going to space. I agree. Thanks again, Jeff. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at spaceq.ca. We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down. <laughs>